I want to talk about uh, fatherhood and family a little bit tonight. And uh, actually, this is a message I've preached uh, several times, pieces of it at least. And I just, I just have had uh, a concern, a burden. I don't know exactly how to share it, but I, I feel like we're, we're, you know, how many understand that the church was birth, birth, was birth in covenant, not a convention? And, you know, Jesus, when Jesus um, broke bread and said, this is my body, and he took the cup and said, this is my blood, it says there was, this, was, this was the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. And so the church wasn't born in a convention. It was born in a covenant. So when Jesus, when he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, and he took the, the, uh, the wine and, and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, uh, the, the church was birthed then, or at least at the crucifixion. However you want to look at it, the church was birthed in a covenant. And when Jesus, you know, the disciples were all, were, were, were you know, they were arguing about who is the greatest. And it, Jesus turns to them and says, one of you will betray me. And that's probably over uh, the four Gospels shared probably five or six times. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And none of them know who will betray Jesus. And they keep saying, is it me? Is it me? And. And then they get to the Last Supper, and I think it's in Luke's Gospel that records that Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And, um, and Peter leans over to John and says, ask, ask Jesus if it's me. And you'll notice that, Jesus, that John doesn't ask him if it's Peter. He asked Jesus, is it me? And um, Jesus goes on to say, let's make a covenant. And when... So for three and a half years, I don't know how long into that three and a half years, Jesus starts telling the disciples that one of them will betray him. Maybe it was a year or maybe it was the last few months. I don't know. But for three and a half years, they're looking. Jesus is telling them one of them will betray me. And they have no clue who it is until Jesus says, let's make a covenant. And when Jesus says, let's make a covenant, Judas says, it's time for me to get out of here. Why? Because the Judas spirit wants intimacy. You remember how Judas betrayed Jesus? With a kiss. And the Judas spirit wants intimacy without covenant. And then when, Jesus, when Judas realized that he was wrong, remember Peter and Judas both betrayed Jesus, but when Judas realized he was wrong, he went out and hung himself. He created his own redemption. And I am concerned that you know, for many years, um, especially in the late 80s and 90s, you couldn't read uh, a charismatic book without having the mention of Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit in, you know, that was re- being released over the church. And there was all kinds of talk about, is that the Jezebel spirit? And there was whole books written on the Jezebel spirit. You can just get on Amazon and see that there's the, that title, Jezebel, or the Jezebel spirit was a very popular title in the 80s and 90s, especially in the prophetic movement. And, you know, Jezebel connected herself to authority and brought down the prophets of God. But I think a much, much more dangerous spirit than the Jezebel spirit is the Judas spirit. The Judas spirit is hidden. And it, I think it's uh, in the book of Jude, it says wild waves of the sea casting up their foam like shame. And it says that they're, they're clouds without water. They feast with you without fear. That so describes Judas. Judas was with them. Now, how many of you understand that if Judas couldn't do miracles, like if he wasn't walking in power and Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they would have all known it was Judas. <laughs> if, you know, if Jesus said, okay, let's, we're going to heal the sick today, and Judas said, I have to go to the bathroom, they were like, 
It's got to be Judas. Every time we pray for the sick, Judas has to go to the bathroom. What I'm getting at is that we have to assume that Judas must have walked in the same kind of power that the other disciples walked in. Otherwise, it would have been so obvious with the disciples you know, walking in signs and wonders and power and miracles. It would have been so obvious that Judas was the one because he couldn't do miracles. And so this wasn't about miracles. This wasn't about the ability. To, this wasn't about the ability to heal the sick or the ability to move in the, in the power of the spirit. This was about heart. This was a heart issue. And I, I really I really have deep concerns. We taught this a lot. I was looking back at my notes and I started teaching some of this in 2006. At least that's how far my notes go back and, and taught it again in 2008. And I, I feel like this is a re, there's a reoccurring theme. And maybe it's that uh, partly it might be that we we keep getting so many new people. We get a thousand new students every year and we get people who migrate here from all over the place. And I start to watch the behavior of people and they come and, you know, they were like, we love this place. And, and, and I really do think that most of our students or many of our students come because of the signs and wonders and miracles. I mean, after all, it's called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And so they get attached and they're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a revivalist. And they come here for power. But I, I would think that most of the students don't stay because of the power. They stay because of covenant and family and honor and the culture. They come for power and they stay for the culture. And, um, and I think that what is often um, behind the scenes, you know, it's like, to me, the, the, the most important part of your house is the foundation and the roof. Those are the two things you don't often see. Like when you come over to my house and I go, man, you should see my foundation. It's amazing. <laughs> Listen, we did so much work to our foundation. We put stairs in so we can show our friends. <laughs> or how about the, you know, the, um, the, the, the infrastructure, you know, the, the uh, what am I trying to say? This, all the studs and the, the framing, you know, it's like that all gets hidden, but you understand that the strength of the house is not in the sheetrock. It's not in the beautiful light fixtures. I mean, that stuff's all fine, but in a storm without, without a good framework, without a good foundation, without a good roof, that stuff falls down. And I think so often, I think, I think so often we, we get excited about the fixtures and we don't know about the foundation. And so we come to a place because of the fixtures. We're like, oh, we like that message or we like that guy's preaching or, well, my, you know, my son, my daughter got healed there. And that's, you know, gosh, that's that's so important. It's, I don't want to play that down. But without a foundation, with with without a frame, without a roof, the whole thing just collapses. I mean, Jesus talked about false prophets. They'll come to you in in sheep's clothing. They'll do signs and wonders and miracles, but don't follow them. Because they're, um, because they're lawless. They have lawless deeds. And then Jesus goes on to describe what, what lawlessness means in that passage. He says, he describes in that passage where he says, Beware of false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but in, inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He goes on to talk about, and he says, You'll know them because they're lawless. And, and then he tells them the story about the house that was built on a rock and a house that was built on sand. And he says the house, the both houses experienced a storm. You, you probably have figured out if you've been a Christian for a long time that being a Christian doesn't keep you from storms. I mean, I, you know, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus and I'm never going to have a storm in my life. That hasn't been true. 
The difference between someone who builds their house on a rock and someone who builds their house on a sand is that when the storm is over, one house is standing and one house isn't. And years and years ago, Randall Worley said this, and I've never forgot it. He said, sand is particles of rock. In other words, sand is little pieces. Well, let me just put it in simple terms. Sand is, 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 is metaphoric in my mind, and Randall brought this up. Uh, it's metaphoric of pieces of teaching, small verses that I build my whole life on, but I don't take the whole counsel of God. And I'm astonished by, um, just in Facebook uh, um, alone, you, know, you post something on Facebook, and this is a whole new experience, this whole you know, social networking for me is a last year and a half is a whole new experience. You post stuff on Facebook and, and you know, there's something really simple. Uh, you know, Jesus loves me. And, you know, of course, people, you know, I'll get, I don't know, four or five hundred responses. Amazing. That's great. But there's always some people that are like, well, maybe if, and there's, you know, they want to share the opposite with you. And, and it's, some of the things are just, they're astounding, like how people can be, how people cannot understand that what keeps what keeps this house together is is truth intention. I, I, somebody shared. I think Paul shared truth intention the other night, last Sunday night. But um, it, I, it's so important that we realize that we've come to a place of covenant, and the foundation the foundation of the church is covenant. We're not supposed to be a global orphanage full of bastards who can't receive discipline, but we are to be a family who can... How many know faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy? It, it's not about... I, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's all about discipline, it's all about wounding. I'm saying, but I am saying that you, Jesus never said, go out and make Christians. He said, go out and make disciples. The root of discipline. Are you, are you with me? Are you following me? It, uh, I guess this isn't very encouraging. Maybe we should go back to the things I read in the beginning. And so there's, there's, there seems to be a lot of pressure to, uh, in recent days, to preach a message. In fact, I wrote this on my Facebook and it really got ugly. I said, whenever you preach grace in a way that takes away personal responsibility, you're preaching a dis- different gospel. I don't, I don't quite understand what people think they came to. It's like you got saved by grace. And, and some people practice that. Like It's almost like getting married and the goal of your, of your life after being married is to try to not get divorced. Like, how much can I get away with and have my wife stay with me? I, I, I don't want to live like that. And so there's people, you know, I, somebody wrote me on Facebook or I don't even remember how the conversation happened. But they were talking about, I don't, I don't have to ask for forgiveness anymore. I don't have to ask for forgiveness. So I quoted 1 John, and, um, you know, one, um, which says something amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, if you confess your sins to one, uh, if you, uh, I can't, um, you're messing me up, man. It's right here. Yeah, yeah. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because they were saying that asking for forgiveness was an Old Testament idea. Once Jesus dies on the cross, he did it all for us. How many of you understand that he did everything? He did all his part for you. He did his part. When he said it's finished, he said, I'm done. 
If he meant you're done, everybody would be in heaven. I, I don't I don't get where people are like, well, is there? I, so I wrote back to the guy and I said, I, 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 first of all, I quote that verse. And and they said, well, you, you, you're going to quote that verse. <laughs> you said there isn't one in the New Testament. They said, well, they wrote back and said, well, you, why, I don't know why you quote that verse. Why well, quote that verse? Because it says, if you confess your sins and you said you didn't have to. They said, well, Jesus has done it all. Yeah, he's done all his part. But if he'd done our part and his part, everybody be in heaven. I still have a will. I still have to make choices. I don't, I don't understand where, where people are coming from, to be honest. And I... And I think that, you know, up till about six months ago, I thought we were the grace preachers. I mean, we were the ones like, hey, don't judge nations and all of that. And then people take that to some, they run some place. I'm like, where are you getting, what Bible are you reading? I mean, how about the, the story of the ten virgins? You know, five are wise and five are foolish. I mean, I think they made decisions. What's the story of the, of the talents? You know, one guy took his talent and buried it. One guy took his talent and made three, and he got three more. One guy got, took his talent and, and, and got, made five, and he, Jesus gave him five more. And then the guy who, made, who buried his talent lost it to the guy who had five and, made, and ended up with ten. Now he has eleven. I, what I'm getting at is that if, it's, if, if your choices don't matter, why tell those stories? Why not just say the guy who got one, Jesus did it all for him. The guy who got five, Jesus did it all for him too. And the guy who got three, Jesus did it all for him. It's all about Jesus. It, it, it isn't all about Jesus. It's about you and Jesus. It, a covenant can only be made between two people. I mean, it's really difficult. We've all seen marriages where one person made a covenant and the other one didn't. And you're like, and the person's like, I'm, I want to stay married. And it's like, hey, I'm not against, I'm not, I'm not for divorce or anything like that. I want to be clear. But it's like one person's living in covenant and the other person isn't. And at, at some point you're like, hey, you know, marriage is actually takes two people. It's called marriage, like merge. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is like not heavy. I don't want to get divorced. It's like somebody already did. I guess I'm, I guess I'm giving permission for people to get divorced. I don't mean it that way at all. I'm, what I'm simply trying to say is that you can't have a covenant with one by yourself. It's like I have a covenant with myself. Well, that's that's awesome. But Jesus made a covenant with you, and you know I don't I don't I think it's important to realize like covenant begins why why is it blood? Because in order to get into the kingdom, you have to die. Like it doesn't it isn't like you live and then die. It's like you die and then live. The cycle starts with you die and then you get to live. And that's a decision you get to make or not. So you made a decision to get into the kingdom. Am I, is this too? You made, you, you made a decision to get into the kingdom. I mean, Jesus did everything he could. He said, over my dead body will you go to hell. But some people still step over it and go to hell. Not because Jesus sends them there, but because they chose to go there. Jesus said, it's finished. Everything I've done everything for you to go to heaven. But I can still choose to go to hell. I can make that choice. And then some people are trying to get rid of hell. It's like, well, there is no hell. It's like, 
You can step over Jesus and go to Nirvana. I don't know where you're going. And you're like, that's, you know, those are, those are all great philosophies. They just don't happen to be in the Bible. Anyway. Yikes. You know, um, most of you are probably in agreement with what I just said. You would be shocked outside the circle how many people are not, are not. Like these simple things I'm saying to you, are there's extreme resistance. There are whole movements against you having a will to walk away from God. You having a will to sin. One of my students um, that graduated said, we were, when we spent three days together, great, great young man. And he said, you know, uh, he, was just, he was one of them that was telling me, he said, I just don't really feel like I have to ask for forgiveness anymore. I said, well, that's because you're not married. He said, you mean if I don't ask for forgiveness, I'm going to go to hell? I'm like, listen, if I don't ask for forgiveness, am I, am, am I, am I trying to spend my life trying to not get divorced? I mean, if I don't ask my wife to forgive me when I do something wrong, is she going to divorce me? I, I don't know. I'm not trying to not be divorced. I'm trying to have an intimate relationship. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have to ask for forgiveness. Okay, I'm not saying you're going to go to hell if you don't ask for forgiveness. I'm, I'm trying to say, is your goal to go to heaven or have a relationship with the king? It's just pretty simple stuff, really. If I do something to violate the king, I want to talk to him about it. I don't have to ask you for forgiveness. You did everything. Okay, you did everything. I feel really bad, like I'd like to talk to you about what I did wrong, though. And then somebody wrote me yesterday and said, you're creating sense consciousness. I go, I'm not. The Holy Spirit is. He convicts me when I sin. And the worst thing in the world that could happen is I do something wrong. No, not, let me say this differently. There is a difference between making a mistake and sinning. So, and I, I want to I draw that distinction. Now, if I, you know, if, I, if someone's walking down the street, I don't see him, I run over him, and I kill him, how many understand that's a, that's a bad mistake? But let's be serious for just a minute. I know this sounds crazy, but that's not a sin. It's not, sin's a hard issue. I didn't do it on purpose. That's why it's called an accident. I didn't do it on purpose. Now, if he's walking down the sidewalk, and I'm mad at him, and I jump up on the sidewalk from my car, and I run over him and break his leg, that's a sin. Are you with me? So, you know, we've been teaching for years that when we receive Jesus Christ, we no longer have a sin nature. That's true, but Adam sinned without a sin nature. Well, how do you know that? Because when God created Adam and Eve, this is Genesis 1, He said, you know, be fruitful, multiply. And at the end of that chapter, He said, He saw that everything that He made was very good. If Adam had a sin nature, God couldn't have said He was very good. So Adam and Eve made choices against God with a free will, without a sin nature. They were not prone to sin, but they were, but they were prone to, to will. They did have a will. So I, I'm not prone to sin. First John makes that very clear. Anyone who's born of God is not prone to sin. I'm not prone to sin. I can't live in a, a sin lifestyle and say I know God. I can say I knew God, but I can't say I know God. You know why I can't say I know God? Because it's something called conviction. And when conviction goes away, that's the worst condition you can be in. Listen, if I'm, if I'm doing something, if I'm sinning, I want to be sin conscious. 
Well, you're creating sin-conscious Christians. Yes, if they're sinning, they should be. If I'm living with my girlfriend, I, I hope I'm sin-conscious if I'm a Christian. Because that's the only way I'm going to get out of it. When I'm living with my girlfriend and I'm not sin-conscious, now I've crossed over to Romans 1. I, I, I have a depraved mind. I, 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 no longer know, I no longer know that what I'm doing... No. I may know that what I'm doing intellectually is wrong, but I no longer in my heart feel convicted for it. I no longer know in my knower that it's wrong. Are you following me? I, I don't know what, what we're trying... I don't know what the, we're trying to prove. I, I, don't, I don't really get what we're trying to prove because when I came to Jesus, I didn't come to Jesus to go to heaven. I came to Jesus because I wanted a father. I wanted a relationship and I get to go to heaven because that's where he lives. I'm going to the Father's house. Because the emphasis about heaven is to get it here. You know, Bill preached it today. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Not your kingdom go. So while I'm on earth, my, my you know, obviously my destiny is heaven, but my ministry is heaven on earth. What I'm getting at is that I, I'm looking for a relationship with God. I'm not just looking to be, get in. So I'm not like, okay, what's the minimum? Like, you know, Jesus did it all, so I don't have to do anything. Well, maybe I don't have to do anything. You know, I know a lot of women that have lazy husbands. They don't do anything. And they're still married. They need to go to the Love After Marriage seminar and figure out how to actually have one. Uh, okay, they don't have a divorce paper. Is, if that's the life you want to lead, you can figure out, like, just sit down and talk to your spouse. Like, okay, what's the minimum requirement? <laughs> now, I'm telling you, there, to me, there's a, I could be completely misunderstanding. There's a whole movement that's like, what's the minimum requirement? I don't have to ask for forgiveness. It's like, I, I don't even know how, I've been walking with God since I was 18. That's more than 12 years ago. Just to be totally real, I have sinned since I was 18. I have sinned at times. And I don't even know how you deal. I, like, you know, my wife could tell you, like, I have a very sensitive conscience. If I lie to somebody, I can't even sleep at night. Well, brother, you're sin conscious. Darn right. And I don't want that to go away. I can't tell you how many times I've had to get up and write a letter or get up and make a phone call. You know, and I'll tell you, when you're like that, how many of you have ever had that before? Yeah. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning and I can't sleep. And it's not I can't sleep because I, my mind's working. My mind does that too. I can't sleep because I'm convicted. I can't wait till the sun comes up so I can go clean up my mess. And I'm cleaning up my mess with God at night. And I'm like, hey, God, you know, I got this problem. And he's like, hey, you know, we want to talk about that. But first, I want you to leave your gift here and go talk to your brother. Okay? You and I, we'll work this out, but you need to work that out with your brother. You sinned against him, too. And so, you know, I don't know how you work through a relationship and, and, and say, well, I, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that. It's not about have to, to me, it's about get to. It, it, when I'm in a family, I, I, because I'm in a family, I have certain responsibilities. You know, it's one of the things we, we teach our children when they're young. It's like, you know... Um, go take out the garbage. You know, when my kid's five years old, go take out the garbage, it's a big deal. 
It's like, I get, and she and Kathy said, it's a miracle. <laughs> no, what's a miracle is when you come home and they did it without asking. That's usually around 16-ish when they get their license and they want the car. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so <laughs> but, but I, I'm, I'm saying, you know, it's easier for me to grab the garbage can, take it outside, dump the stupid garbage can, bring it inside. What's that take? You know, I'm 30 seconds. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving my kids responsibility for their sake when they're little. They don't do enough to actually relieve me of any responsibility. I do it to teach them you're part of a family and that means you're carrying responsibility. Hello. This isn't an orphanage where we do everything for you and this isn't the spirit of entitlement here. This is a family where there's an exchange of life and you're going to learn, if it kills us both, how to do this. When my sons were young, they had to cut the lawn. I mean, the lawn was like, come on. The lawn couldn't have been as big as that right there. Seriously, we had a... a we had a gas lawnmower that was self-driven. If you tried really hard, you could finish the lawn in about seven minutes. That includes trimming, which we had a weed eater. That's it. But there was something about mowing the lawn that they would intentionally break the rope off the lawnmower. So you break the rope. Hey, Dad, the rope broke. <laughs> it's like soap on a dope rope. I'm like, what? How did you break the rope? It's a new lawnmower. It broke the rope again. How did you break the rope? I don't know. I just pulled the rope and the rope broke. <laughs> Dude, I cut the lawn for 10 years before, you were born, before your mom birthed you. I never broke the rope once. You break the rope every other week. I don't know how it happens. I, just, oh, I don't, don't know my own strength. <laughs> you know what's amazing? When they came in and said, you know, the rope broke again. I said, oh, that's too bad. You know, I, I got these clippers and I just want you to cut the whole lawn with these clippers. <laughs> it's amazing how strong the rope was after that. I was ready for that. The rope broke because I knew they were going to break the rope because it didn't break the week before. It never lasted more than two weeks. So they walk in and they're like, I, the, I, yeah, yeah, I know. Here's a pair of clippers for you and a pair for you. What do you want to stay with those? Uh, cut the whole lawn. I want you to, oh, that's going to take us about four hours. Huh. Wow, you got a problem. You know why? You're part of the family and your job is to cut the lawn. Oh, we're doing so hard. Oh, us. Life is tough. Yeah, it is so tough. I can't hardly wait till you get out that door and see what life's really about. It's amazing. The rope never broke after the clippers. I had a plan B, backup plan, and they, they're like, the rope is fine now. Like, wow, that's amazing. Those people come to church, they break the rope. I don't know, I can't do anything, you know, there's nothing to do. Well, how about tithing? Well, that's an Old Testament principle. <laughs> yeah. Anything to do with me having to give is an Old Testament principle. Jesus did it all.
I don't believe in institutional church. I just believe in spending all my money on me. And if I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it where I want it because I don't trust you. People ask me, do you believe in institutional church? I don't know. I don't believe in mental institutional churches. <laughs> what a stupid question. <laughs> Just, uh, you, know. you know, what? I mean, you believe in institutional um, families? Well, I know whole families that were institutionalized, if that's what you're asking. I do believe in organization. You know, it's organization. It's what's keeping you alive. Keeping me alive. I mean, the fact that they're like, I mean, I don't know anything about... (laughs) Sorry. I don't know anything about the body at all. But I know enough to know that if them things aren't in order, you're dead. I've had one of them clog up before and almost kill me. <laughs> it was right where it was supposed to be. I, I, you know, I don't understand why, what people are thinking, you know. Like if you have one kid, like it's you and your wife and one kid, you know, you don't have to have much institutional family. But you know what? If you have ten... I mean, you better think it's one. It's like, okay, I'm going to eat whenever our spirit moves me. Well, mom ain't going to go for that, dude. Mom ain't going to go for that. I'm just going to float in here at four and my tummy feels hungry. (laughs) I might work with one kid, but it ain't going to work with ten. Your mother's going to kill one of us and it ain't going to be me. Everybody that has a family knows, like, you know, well, this is an institutional church. And it's called organization. Like, it's the way, like, you know, little Johnny gets fed and Mary gets fed, too. And their butts get wiped and all that stuff happens so they don't die. (laughs) Seriously. We had four teenagers in the house at the same time. We had four teenagers in high school at the same time because our oldest was adopted. And, you know, it got to be like, okay, so dinner's at 6, right? And then and then at 8. Because, you know, Eddie's going one way, and Jason's going another way, and Shannon's going another way. And it's like, you know, pretty soon we, like, like I thought we used to be a family. Like, I used to see my kids. And about three or four months of that, we're like, hey, we're going to put some institutional family in here. Listen, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, everyone's home at 6 for dinner. Oh. Well, that feels like the law. It is. Your mother laid it down. You're going to be here at six. If you want permission to be gone, ask. But don't ask every week because this is called a family. It's going to remain a family no matter how old you get until you get out of here. You're going to be here at six. There it is. (laughs) Wherever there's a will, there's relatives. Do I have to go to church? And they started that about 14. No, you don't have to. You get to. You're making me go? Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like the law. It is. 
is good for you. Like, you're not even old enough to know what's good for you yet. Well, I'm bored there. Yeah, I'd rather have you be bored there than, you know, in the street with some needle in your arm. Just, you're coming. I don't have any friends there. Well, be friendly. You'll have some. (laughs) Just be friendly. You'll have some friends. (laughs) Well, the leader's kind of controlling. That's why we're bringing you. (laughs) You look out of control. You look out of control. And, and, you know... (laughs) I'm going to get crucified for this, I know. Galatians 5 says self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. How do we know when the Spirit's controlling us? When I do by the Spirit what I used to do under the law when I want to. I mean, most of the stuff. I'm not talking about like killing chickens or or lambs or whatever. (laughs) I don't know what they killed, whatever they did. I'd pass out. I'm glad I wasn't... I see blood, down I go. I wouldn't have made a good Old Testament person. (laughs) This is a family. (laughs) You know, the body is greater than the sum of its organs. But without the organs, you're dead. So, you know, it's, and people are like, well, I believe in um, home church. That, that's fine. I don't really care what you believe in. You go, home church is good. I, I don't care what the structure is, but at some point you'll have structure, unless it's just you <laughs> and Johnny and your wife. At some point you're like, hey, we meet at seven. <laughs> well, the Spirit led me here at three. Well, well, the Spirit's going to have to lead you back out till 7. <laughs> we just float in here whenever we feel like it. <laughs> no, you don't. This is my house. And I walk around in my underwear, and you ain't coming here till 7. That feels like the place I left. Institutionalized. You end up with the same thing you're running from. I mean, at some point, you have to have organization. At some point. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) Well, I don't believe in having a leader. Yeah, I knew that was coming. Tell your boss that when you go to work. I don't believe in leadership. Have you ever heard of the shepherding movement? <laughs> it's so crazy. People will do for money what they won't do for love. <laughs> it's the oldest profession in the world. I mean, just try, try your attitude out on your boss and see if you can keep your job. Well, I didn't feel like I was supposed to come today. And I didn't feel like I was supposed to give you a paycheck. So, wow, we were on the same page. <laughs> Isn't it funny? People will like, they'll, they'll go to work the time the boss says, do everything the boss tells them to do, 
boss doesn't even have to be a Christian. Take lunches, wear the uniform, whole thing, leave when the boss says, get two weeks vacation for money. Then come to church and you're like, hey, uh, can you move up three rolls? Oh, the Lord is my shepherd and I don't believe in leadership. I'm like, how do you survive with that mentality? I have my own business. Really? You have any employees? Yep. Do they believe in leadership? Because if they don't, <laughs> I hope you're not paying them. <laughs> I have my own business because I don't want to be led by anybody. Well, do you lead anybody? Yes, I do. Well, that's kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Yeah. No, my men are all led by the Spirit. <laughs> yeah, I bet that works out good for you. <laughs> if you're going to fire me, I feel led to work hard right now. You didn't get that. Anyway, <laughs> it really silly. I mean, some, you know, the people that travel around and preach this stuff, they actually don't have a, a church. Let us go from place to place preaching things that don't work. I'm really serious. That whole conference is about stuff that doesn't work. Well, I believe. Well, that's fine. Show me that it works. Man, I'll have the best marriage in the world till I got one. <laughs> Those whole business schools were the person who's teaching you never been in business. Well, this is the way it ought to work. Well, it works fine on paper, but until you try it out on the, in, in the real world, you know, I'm going to jump off the roof, I should fly. But it just doesn't work that way because the law <laughs> takes me to the ground. And I was like, I can fly. I believe. <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> <He just> finished. <laughs> you didn't get that anyway. <laughs> uh, this is so painful. That's painful because people actually believe this stuff. I'm really serious. <laughs> no, I'll give you a little contradiction. Matthew 23, verse 9. Jesus said this. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. And he, he is in heaven. That's a good verse right there. I want, you put that one on Facebook and it's amazing what you get out of that. <laughs> you know, in the Old Testament, the word fathers used 613 times. Only four times for God. In the New Testament, the word fathers used 311 times, 249 times for God. Do you think that it's a family affair? You think God's trying to tell us something? Okay, so Jesus said, don't call anyone on earth your father. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, Paul wrote, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Well, Paul, <laughs> you got a little problem here because Jesus said, don't call your father. Okay, call me daddy. <laughs> I'm really concerned that, we're, that we globally are moving away from covenant family foundation. And we're beginning to take scriptures, one or two or three scriptures, particles of rock, and build whole cultures that have nothing to do with covenant and family. When you start teaching grace in a way that you take away personal responsibility, 
That is not the gospel that we've been taught by Jesus. And the epistles were, were written not because Jesus did it all. I mean, when, let, me, let, me re- let me say that differently. They wouldn't, the epistles wouldn't have been written if it was just about Jesus. Right? It would just be the gospels. Jesus did it all. And book of Acts. We're done. What do the epistles teach us? How to live. My part. They don't, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> the epistles weren't written to God. Okay, God, this is how I want you to treat me. They were written to you. This is how to live. And then the letters to the, the pastoral letters to Timothy, where Paul would write and say to Timothy, I want you to go in every city and appoint elders. What for? I don't believe in leadership. Oh, just so we can say we have some. And it's just silly stuff, man. Just crazy. Someone wrote me, this is probably three months ago, they said, I, I don't believe that any man has authority over another man. I'm like, that's a great philosophy. How about Hebrews 13? Obey your leaders and submit to them. And do it in such a way that you bring joy to them. Because they watch over your soul and they give account to God in heaven. And he wrote Spike and says, well, you would quote that scripture. Well, which one do you want me to quote? Jesus went out and hung himself? I I mean, oh, you pulled the scripture on me. I am so sorry. You pulled the philosophy on me. And and the crazy thing is, is that think about just, just if you will, just forget the church. What organization, what business would survive with nobody having authority over anybody? Well, have you read the starfish and the spider? Yeah, I read it twice. You know, how many of you read that book? I think it's a great book. It's about social networking. And the point they're making you know, is the starfish. Like, you can kill a spider because you can step on them, but a starfish, if you cut off any of the, star, the, the arms of the starfish, they grow back. You cut them in half, it grows two starfish. And it's like you can't kill a starfish. Yes, you can. All you have to do is throw them up on the beach. We used to collect dead ones. Just take them out of the water. Just take them out of... The spider will run away, but the starfish just sits there and lets you step on them and kill them. You didn't get all that, did you? But they were just trying to say that the organizations, the organizations that are growing are flat organizations. There's no leader. But what's interesting in, in the whole book, they couldn't cite one organization that had no leader. From cover to cover. I read the book twice. I loved it. There were some great principles in it. Couldn't cite one company that runs with no leader. Well, you know, IBM doesn't have a leader. Yes, they do. Yes, somebody has to give an account for you. Well, I don't believe that's true. Yeah, well, you're out of a job, aren't you? What do you do when you speed? What do you tell the police officer? I don't believe in leadership. (laughs) I don't believe. I don't believe. I mean, this is just, this is kindergarten stuff, man. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous stuff. I'm telling, listen, you, how many of you guys have a Facebook page? Just write anything that says you have to give an account for your life to a person and watch what happens. It's just an experiment. <laughs> Serious. I was like, I had 
1,400 comments. Not thumbs up. 1,400 comments. One lady wrote a book to me. She started out, introduction. I'm dead serious. I told you, this is the truth. You can probably, I don't know if they archive it. Introduction. Like, 300 words. I'm like, dude, I'm going to Twitter. <laughs> Just, that would have took her six months to tweet that. And furthermore, I say, send that, send. Just, it's just crazy, man. People that have hurts create doctrines to embrace their dysfunction. I don't know if you just heard what I said. People have been hurt by authority, so they create doctrines to embrace their dysfunction. It's the truth. I want to spiritualize the fact that I'm dysfunctional. I'm independent. I'm a rebel. And no, I'm not. Because the Lord's my shepherd. Well, how do we, how, how do we know that you're following the Lord? It means He happens to be invisible. Well, I am. It's not showing up in the visible. Like I would think if you love your brother... Like, if you love God, then you love your brother, and you can't say you love God and not love your brother. And, you know, John said, how, how can you love a God you can't see if you can't love your brother you can see? It's like, how do I know you're submitted to God if you won't do anything that people he put in charge tell you to? Well, because I am. Well, how do you know that you're only hearing what you want to hear then? Because I think he said, submit to Chris and give him an offering. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's getting intense in here right now. You can feel it. How long have I preached? Have a few more hours. Ephesians 6 to honor your mother and father is the first commandment with a promise. Jesus actually quoted it. There's something about honoring people in our lives that creates a path for life to flow. There's something about honoring people above you. Well, there isn't nobody above me. I don't I don't believe in a hierarchy. Well, do you believe in an hierarchy? Because you're heirs of Christ Jesus. Because <laughs> I, you know, I remember Jesus told this parable about this guy that, you know, he he invited his friends over for for dinner, Luke 14, and this guy came in and he sat at the highest place. And the guest, the chief guest, said, um, "I'm sorry." There's someone more distinguished than you that just came in the room. You're going to have to sit down further. Well, wait a second, man. I'm as good as anyone else. Well, Jesus loves you all the same, but he just doesn't favor you the same. You're saying Jesus has favorites? No. The Bible says it. It says that even Jesus grew in favor with God and man. You mean there may be somebody that God favors more than me? Mm-hmm. Well, that's painful. Before the wounds of a friend. 
<clears throat> See, but the good, the good side of that is this, is that there's three levels of life. There's curses, right? That means that I can do the right thing and the wrong thing still happens. And we were all under that before we knew Jesus, right? And then there's sowing and reaping. That means I get what I work for. That's kind of cool. It's kind of cool when you come out of curses. It's kind of cool that you work for something and you actually get it. Right? The labor, the labor is worthy of his hire. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. What's that mean? That means that he actually gets what he worked for. But the highest level of life is inheritance, right? That means I, didn't, I don't get what I work for. I get what you work for. It means that you leave me inheritance. The righteous man leaves an inheritance to his what? Children's children. Are you, are you with me at all? And so what I'm getting at is this, is that honor creates a path of life so that when I realize that I'm not the most favored, all I have to do is build an, a relationship through honor with someone who has more favor and everything they have flows to me naturally. It's a picture of Psalms 133, I think it is, where it talks about Aaron. And the anointing starts from the head and goes down over his beard and all the way down to his feet. You can be at the head or the feet, but if you stay in order in the institutionalized church, (laughs) the same amount of anointing that's on the head will flow to you eventually. But if you get out of order, then you create dripping points where the anointing no longer comes to you. Are you, are you, are you with me? And, and what I'm saying is, is that, see, in, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says, um, leaving uh, the elementary teachings of Christ, let's press on to maturity, no longer laying a foundation, of, and then it gives six foundational truths. And one of them is the laying on of hands. It's resurrection from the dead, repentance from dead works, Laying on of hands and three others. Baptism. Thank you. I could actually read it. It's right here. I just wanted to see if you guys knew him. <laughs> laying on of hands. It's written to the Hebrews. Do you know laying on of hands to the Hebrews wasn't for healing? It's the way they passed inheritance from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. Do you know that I think that most Christians... Don't even know what Jacob fought for. Remember, he deceived his father out of the out of the inheritance. Isaac, remember that there was Ishmael. I'm sorry, there was uh, Esau. There was Esau, and and there and there was Jacob. And Esau sold his birthright for a meal. In other words, he was willing to give up tomorrow for today. So that he can have instant gratification today. Sells his birthright. His father, you know, says, okay, you know, he's, his father's blind. Isaac's blind. And says, listen, um, I'm going to give away the birthright. Um, like tonight, I want you to, you know, make me a meal. So uh, they both boys, Jacob and Esau, go out. And Esau's really a hairy man. And he goes out and, you know, kills an animal and... Gets it all ready for his father. And his mother, uh, Jacob's mom, says, listen, you need to get this birthright. His mother's the one who convinces him to get the birthright. And she helps him cook dinner and all that. And before, before uh, Esau gets back, Jacob goes in. He puts uh, hair, you know, uh, skins on his, on his arms so, he feels, so he, he feels like he's hairy. And he comes in. He makes a meal for his father. You remember all this? I'm doing a terrible job telling the story. His father's blind. He says to him something like, you know, you, 
You feel like Esau, but you smell like Jacob. And he and then he lays hands on him after the meal and he gives Jacob the birthright. And then Esau comes in a little while later, maybe an hour or two later, and he has his meal already. And he, he walks in and says to his father, here I am, father, bless me. And he said, and his father says, who are you? He's, you know, obviously completely blind. Who are you? You sound like Esau. You smell like Esau. You feel like Esau. But who was that that I just gave the birthright to? And this is amazing. And Esau says to his dad, give it to me too. And his father says, I already gave it to Jacob. What did he do? All he did was lay hands on him. I mean, I mean, you know, in, in the way we understand, it's like he laid hands on him and, and Esau's like, lay hands on me too. And his father's like, you don't understand. I gave it all to Jacob. I, would want, I didn't even want to. I'd love to take it back, but I already gave it all to Jacob. At the end of Jacob's life, when he's about to die, you know, his name's changed to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. You know the story. One of his sons, Joseph, is Joseph. And Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. This is in the 48th chapter of Genesis. And Jacob, um, I'm sorry, Joseph says to his father, Bless, father, would you bless my sons? And now, Jacob, Israel, is blind, just like his father was blind in his old age. And so he brings the two sons, Joseph does, and he takes Manasseh, the youngest, and he puts him on the left knee. And he takes Ephraim, the oldest, and he puts him on the right knee. And his father, Jacob, does this. And takes his right hand and puts it on the younger son. And Joseph starts yelling. No, Dad! No, no! Why is he yelling? Because he knows the story of his father. He knows that once his father speaks the blessing, he can't get it back. He knows his uncle went with no blessing because he came an hour late. He doesn't have time to mess around with his father. And it says that he says, no, father. And he grabs his father's hands. It says he grasps him by the hands and he pulls his hands back and says, this is the oldest. Put your right hand on the on Ephraim, on, on Manasseh. And his dad says, no, no, listen, I know what I'm doing. Manasseh shall be great, but Ephraim shall be greater. And he goes like this. I mean, the Jewish mind isn't just concerned about laying on hands. They're concerned about which hand. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I'm saying that there's something about honor that causes me to see what can't be seen. Do you understand that every time you go through a trial and you, you pass that trial, let's say you're tempted with some kind of thing and you, don't, you, just, you avoid the temptation, you, go, you, you receive grace. More grace. More grace. More grace. Every time you go through a trial, you receive grace. Are you with me? What happens at the end of your years? At the end of your years, you are a treasure of grace. But because in our culture we only value gifts, see, we only value what you can do, not who you are. But we don't realize that the greatest treasure lies in the twilight of your life. When only those who have eyes to see 
and ears to hear can see it. So God hides the greatest treasures in the twilight years of your life. So only people who understand, honor, have eyes to see the treasure that's hidden in a place where people can no longer perform, but are full of treasure. I'm telling you, convalescent hospitals are the greatest treasures on the planet. There's places, God is hiding treasures in places nobody ever looks. I remember, this is many, many years ago, but we had, um, I'll give you the short version. We had five different prophets come and say, revival's coming from the youth over a period of a year. And, and I was great. You know, I have four kids, and three of my kids are in full-time ministry. So, I mean, that was all great. I'm good with that. We're living for another generation is one of our messages. It's our heart, our core values. But the fifth time, I mean, the, the third time that, that a, a different prophet said that, I was crying. I didn't know why. The fourth time, I was, I was on the floor weeping. I didn't know why. Have you ever had something that your heart knows but your head doesn't know? Your heart knows things your head doesn't know, I'm telling you. The fifth time it happened, I still remember I was sitting right there. It was on a Sunday night. And, you know, revival's coming from the youth, you know, brought up all the young people and and we're praying over the young people, and I'm totally fine with the message. I don't have any theological problem with it or anything. I, I, it's not like, well, you know, you're leaving us out. I, 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 I'm so grieved. I'm on the floor. And the thing is, it's like the message was fine. Like, you know, there's messages people preach. I don't like the message. I'm like, I don't like that message. I don't agree with that. It wasn't like that. In fact, the real struggle was I thought it was fine. But the message was great. But something was wrong. And I, was, I would lay on the floor for three or four minutes, like I did a few months before. And then I was, like so, I was so overcome, I got up and I drove home. And we lived in a little apartment down the street. And I'm laying on the floor. It's not too good, you know, when you're one of the pastors and you, you go home during the service. So I go home and I'm laying on the floor and I'm just overcome with grief. I'm just overcome with grief. Kathy may remember those, those days. And I'm like, part of the grief is I don't know what I don't know. Like, I know there's something wrong, but I don't know what it is. It's not here. Like, I don't have an intellectual problem with anything that's happening. And then the Lord says to me, revival is not coming from the youth. And he says to me, when I have an opinion, this is funny. He says to me, when I have an opinion, you don't have a right to a different one. But where I'm silent, feel free to dream. And he takes me to, you know, the real popular passage, Acts chapter 2. Verse 17, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters, your old men and your sons, even your bond servants. What's the point? Revival doesn't have a gender, doesn't have a generation, doesn't have a social class. And then, so I'm, so I'm on the floor, like, this is not, this is good because I'm finally like putting, I'm able to put words to what my, what the problem I have. And the Lord, the Lord said to me, my prophets, and he didn't say they were false prophets, he said, my prophets are speaking from the second heaven. And he said, what generation does your culture honor? The world, honor. Well, the, everybody wants to be young. Everybody's trying to look young. You know, he's young for his age. You know, he looks young for his age. That'd be an insult in the Bible. A gray head is a crown 
The Lord says to me, and so I said, the young generation. And the Lord says, what generation do I honor in the Bible? The elders. No question. And then I had this vision while I'm laying on the floor in an apartment. I had this vision. And in this vision, the, this man is with two daughters. And he says to the one daughter, you're beautiful. And says nothing to the second. And then the scene changes, and they're in another place, same two daughters, same dad. And he turns to the same daughter and says, you're beautiful, but says nothing to the second. Then the scene changes one more time, same two daughters, same father, then in a different place. And the father turns to the same daughter and says, you're beautiful, but says nothing to the second. And then in the vision, the Lord says, omission is powerful. (laughs) What are you saying if you say revival is coming from the youth? What are you saying to the middle-aged people? What are you saying to the elders? You are saying something. And what I'm getting at is this. The most important thing is this. Is that when you release dishonor in a culture, you, you, you steal inheritance. And everybody is in sowing and reaping mode. And nobody is getting for free what someone else worked for. Because we refuse to honor, there's no path for inheritance. Because we're like, hey, we're at this round table. No, I'm sorry, you weren't invited to a round table. You were invited to a rectangular table that has levels of honor. Someone more distinguished than you comes in, you have to take a lower seat. That means somebody is more distinguished than you. That's why you need the gift of distinguishing spirits. I'm serious. If you have the gift of distinguishing spirits, then you can distinguish somebody, you know them after the spirit instead of after the flesh. And that person may be 80 years old and and doesn't have all their marbles. And you're like, you know what? But in the spirit, they're a treasure chest. They can't perform, but there's a hidden treasure in there. Bill practices better than anybody I know. Bill's Bill's been prayed for by some of the most powerful people. I remember um, Oral Roberts, uh, a week or two or three, a month before Oral Roberts died at least. You know, Bill got in a room with him. What's this Bill do? I know what Bill's going to do. He gets in a room with anybody that he sees, whoa, that guy's got more favor than me. He's like, can you pray for me? And Oral Roberts prayed for him and boom, Bill was out on the floor, down or hit with light lightning. It was a good thing, right? I forget how you tell a story, but Oral said, did you feel that? Bill's like, yes. But I mean, you know why? This is my opinion. This is subjective. I've watched people that are more anointed than Bill pray for Bill over the years, many, many, many times. And almost always he has some crazy manifestation. And he's not huge on, on manifestations. I mean, you know, and what I'm getting at is this. I think it's because he doesn't have a little trail. I think it's because when if someone's got 440, you know, volts. There's no resistance in his extension cord. He gets 440. For some of us, we, we have a little bit of honor. And we're kind of like, whoa, we get a little jiggle. Ha, oh, thank you. It's just too much resistance. There's no honor. It's like, well, you know, kind of like the guy. He's got some stuff going on. Would you pray for me? Or not. We're like, why would I have him pray for me? You know, I'm like, it's all about Jesus. And he's done it all for me. And he said, it's finished. I'm like, yeah, and you know what you're doing? You're sitting there sowing and reaping. You're getting what you worked for instead of getting an inheritance. And it's all, it's all about attitude. 
It's all because you refuse to have a father. And then we have people running around our school. It's like, I want a dad. I want a dad. It's like, well, you've got to be a son so you can be fathered. I can't tell you how many people want a dad, but they mean, they're looking for a sugar daddy. No. Yeah, I'm hanging around the old guy so when he croaks, he can give me his stuff. Like, no, 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 no. no that, that's, not how, no. that's not what fatherhood's about. Fatherhood and sonship, the restoration of fatherhood and sonship has discipline right in the middle of it. If you can't receive discipline, then you're a bastard or illegitimate son. That what separates sons from illegitimate, well, from bastards, King James says bastards, what separates sons from, from bastards is the ability to receive discipline. Well, no one can tell me what to do. Okay, well, I'm not saying you can't go to heaven. I'm just simply saying you're going to go as an orphan instead of a son. These are all, this is, this is basic, like, Kingdom 101. Like, we taught this stuff, Bill's taught this for years. We taught this stuff to the school, or first year school ministry students, 14 years ago. But for some reason, it feels like we have to keep coming back and going, listen, this elementary principles that the writer of Hebrews said, leaving the elementary teachings of Christ, let's press on the maturity. You can't leave them because you don't have them. These simple things, These, simple, these six simple things that are foundational, you don't have them. Laying on of hands. Oh, I love laying on of hands. No, for healing you do. But for inheritance, you have to have honor. You have to actually think somebody has something to give you. Love what Paul said in Romans 1. I long to come to you. He's speaking to the Romans. That I might impart some spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. I don't know if you just got what he just said. It was a nice way of saying, you're not established because I haven't imparted a spiritual gift to you. I love what happened with Joshua and Moses. And I'll end with this example. Joshua was up on the mountain. You know the, you know the story. And, Mo, and I'm sorry, Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua was down in the valley. I think he's fighting the Amalekites that time. And, and Moses is watching the battle. Joshua's a great warrior. He's got a great army with him. Horses prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. I don't really know how this happened. This is my own rendition of it. I think Moses is like, good job, you know. And when he raises his hands, Joshua starts winning. It says that the armies of Israel prevailed over the Amalekites when Moses raises his arms. I kind of think he went winning, losing, winning, losing. Aaron, Herc, come over here. You are not going to believe what's happening right here. Watch this. Are they losing? Yeah, Mo, they're losing. Watch this. Are they winning? Clearly, the battle has changed. Come over here and hold up my arms. I don't know why, but the postmodern generation doesn't know about this. They just keep building bigger armies, getting more powerful weapons, and they don't know anything about supporting their leaders. Well, he ain't getting my money. Whatever. Keep your money. You can have it. No one's trying to get your money. 
God don't need your money. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Can only serve God or mammon. Can only serve God or money. Jesus said, you can't serve both masters because you'll hate the one or hold the other or you despise the one and love the other. You know, I, what are you protecting? What are you protecting? You're trying to get my money. No, I'm not even taking an offering. I'm just trying to say that if you can't give what is the fruit of your labor to people who give their life spiritually to you. I'm not sure where you go from here. So I think it's really important that we come to this place where we realize Jesus did it all he's going to do. He did it all. That's true. How about you? What are you doing? Because if you can will yourself to hell or will yourself to heaven, certainly you can will yourself to a wonderful life or to a crummy life once you get into the kingdom. So this is a family and you have responsibility. Stop breaking the cord or I'm going to hand you clippers. Some of you are clipping the lawn. You're like, I don't understand why this is happening. I can tell you why it's happening. It's metaphoric, of course. It's happening because you don't think anyone's your leader but Jesus. And Jesus said, see, I've set up this leadership. I said, go appoint elders in every city. I said, obey your leaders. I said, here's the fivefold ministry. I talked to you about leadership. I talked to you about humility. I talked to you about favor. You know, I've showed you over and over Paul's relationship with Timothy. I command you, Timothy, be here by winter. Well, did you, did you make a suggestion or a commandment? It's not this harsh. It's like, yeah, this is about, hey, Timothy, you know what? You need to be circumcised. There's lots of people talking about you. Yeah, it's going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me, son, but. Those are the verses we just erase. No one's going to tell me what to do. Well, Paul circumcised Timothy at 30. And then wrote in Galatians, if you receive circumcision, faith is of no value to you. Just didn't preach it to Timothy. If I was Timothy, I'd be like, hey, Paul, remember that letter you wrote? Tim, come here. <laughs> I'm still looking for the letter you, I helped you with. Come here, Timothy. Good thing there wasn't Facebook. I mean, Timothy would be like, oh. <laughs> I've been wounded. I need duct tape. <laughs> duct tape, you can fix anything with duct tape, I'll tell you that. Okay, why don't you stand? We're going to pray. You know, I want to pray for people that have been wounded because I know what it's like to grow up with 
with fathers, bad fathers, you know. You know my story. I've told it over and over. Uh, two stepfathers who didn't like me. By the way, um, they both received Jesus. And my first stepfather went home to be with the Lord about a year ago. My second stepfather is still in my life. He totally loves me. I think I've told the story before, but two years ago, he walks in my office at home. It's like, it's like 6 o'clock in the morning. I got up early to finish some stuff. We were on vacation, and I wanted to finish some stuff that wouldn't affect my family. So I got up really early, and I was finishing this, this article I was supposed to write. And my dad gets up early, my, my, my second stepfather. He walks into my office, and he's standing there. You know, he's 70. I'm thinking he's having a senior moment. And he's looking at me. So I look up at him as if to say, you want to say something? And he just looks at me, and he turns around and walks out. I'm like, okay. Maybe he's just coming in to see what the noise was. So I'm finishing typing, and about three minutes later, he comes back in, and he's standing in the doorway, and he's got tears running down his eyes. Tears. Now, my dad, don't cry. All my... Child, all my early years, he was a rage-aholic. He's crying. I look up. I kind of scoot out from behind the desk. I said, Dad, you, you all right? And he says with his whole face trembling, You are the greatest man I've ever met in my life. And he said, You deserve everything that you have been given. And then he turns around and he walks out of my office. My father has never said, I love you. He has now, since then. And I'm like, what happened to my father? So but I know what it's like to live in abusive authority. I know what it's like when somebody says, hey, you know what? You need to like have a father and your mother in your life. You need to have authority in your life. You're like, ha ha, I did that growing up, dude. I'm not doing that twice. I get that. I understand what it's like to have to work through fathers. And I have to tell you, I've never had a bad spiritual father, and I'm thankful for it. But I know some of you have. But, you know, I could have a, you know, a bad marriage. It doesn't mean I believe in living together. You know, I don't want to react and build something worse than what I reacted from. And so, you know, I do get it. I do understand that when you hear fathers, you hear, you know, family, you hear covenant, you hear lay down your life, it's like, ha, huh, you know, the only covenant I've ever made is not reciprocal. It's like, I lay down my life, they walk on me. That's my life. <laughs> Greater love that has no man than this, than he lay down his friend for his life. It's like, that's my favorite verse, and I've read it over and over. It's like, you, you know, I understand what you're telling me, and that's why I built this doctrine that says, listen, I found all the pieces of verses that say, the Lord is my shepherd. I know the verse that Jesus said, don't call anyone father. I have it, I have it tattooed to my back right here. I know every verse that keeps me from having to listen to you. I have all those verses written down. And I can argue them with you. It's like, okay, well, just come and be part of a family. Yeah, I've done that before, too. And so I, I know what that's like. I understand that. I'm not inviting you into a perfect family, but neither am I inviting you into a family that oppresses you, you know, beats you, hurts you, molests you, rapes you. I'm not talking about submitting yourself or following somebody who, who treats people like that. But I am also saying you're not going to find a perfect father. Well, except for Bill. <laughs> Raise time pretty quick here. I gotta, no. Seriously, you're not going to find a per- The truth is, 
you're not going to find a perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect person except for Jesus. So it's like, you, you know, and what we do is, because we're afraid of fathers, we find something wrong with people. It's like, okay, you know, love covers the multitude of sins, but fear uncovers people. I'm telling you, fear, uh, you know what? Uh, listen, we, we actually all know this. We all know this because we've all been afraid of somebody at some time in our life. And what happens when we're afraid of them? We can think of everything they've ever done wrong. We, in fact, we keep a long list in case we need it. So, you know, when people come in, they're like, well, you know, my leadership abused me. It's like, what did they do? And I'm just like, well, man, they had a bad day. I mean, come on. Is that a bad day? A little grace. A little love. A little, hey, that hurt my feelings. A little, come on, let's get some skills. Right? You understand what I'm saying? So, if you've been hurt by leadership, mothers, fathers, it can be biological, whatever. But, I mean... You're, when I say you're hurt, listen, we can all raise our hand. We're all going to raise our hand. We've all raised our hand. I mean, it's affecting you. Like tonight we're talking and it's like, the more I talk, the more painful it gets and it isn't because I'm boring. <laughs> you feel the pain. Like you, honest, in, in a serious note, you feel the pain. Like this feels painful. If that's you and you want out of that, I want you to raise your hand. We're going to pray for you and God's going to heal you. He's going to heal your heart. I want you to raise your hand if that's you. If you're watching by iBuffalo TV, same thing. You don't have to raise your hand. I don't, we wouldn't see it anyway. But you need to raise your heart. You need to say, you need to put your hand on your heart. Say, I'm going to receive this right now. If that's you, just raise your hand. I'm serious. Raise your hand high. I can tell you that, I, you know, I would have been in that boat for sure the first 10 years of my Christian walk. I mean, I was so overly sensitive to anyone telling me anything because of the leadership that I had in my life. I was like a dog who'd been beaten. You say anything to me, I just like, I'm just convinced you're going to hurt me. I know you're trying to hurt me. If that's you, just raise your hand. Okay, I want you, those that are around, just put your hand on their shoulder, and I'm actually going to pray for them. I just, I want you to be an extension of, of our hands, but I, I want to pray for them. If you don't have somebody praying for you, just kind of wave your hand so we know that you still aren't being prayed for. Okay, once, you're, uh, once you have someone praying for you, you can go ahead and put your hand down. I'm going to pray for you right now. And I'm going to pray. We're going to start right now. I'm going to pray for you. And, and you guys that are, have your hands on them, I just want you to agree with my prayer. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you brought us to this place. I, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you, would, that you would heal the brokenhearted. That's what you said you would do. You came to heal the brokenhearted. And you, you came to pr- proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so right now, I release that word. Thousands of years ago, the prophet said that you would heal the brokenhearted. I pray that you would restore their soul, as David said, and the Lord restores my soul. I pray that although the memory may remain, that the pain that's attached to that memory or those memories, or many memories, or many fathers, or many mothers, or many people who are in authority. I pray that although the memories may remain, that the pain would be completely and totally and totally eradicated. There would be no more pain attached to those memories in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And I prophesy over those of you that are being prayed for right now, that the Lord is doing a Malachi for work in your lives and that he's restoring hearts of fathers to sons 
and hearts of sons to fathers, daughters and mothers also, same. Lord, I release that over them right now, that even people who have hurt them, harmed them, um, done things wrong in their life, would come back and reconcile with them. I pray for that. I pray there would be phone calls and letters and emails in Jesus' name, that there would be communication back to them saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me, whatever. And I feel like some of you, Matthew 18, I feel like some of you just need to go back and reconcile. You're like, well, I wasn't the one who was wrong. I understand that, but I feel like for some of you, and you know who you are because Holy Spirit's talking to you right now, you need to go back and say, you really hurt me. And maybe you're going to find out in a conversation that you really hurt them too. You don't know. But the point is, is that you're going to, maybe you are supposed to be the catalyst to this reconciliation. And I'm not necessarily saying that you're going to go back and trust them. Maybe Holy Spirit has you do that. But I am saying that you're going to go back and bring closure to your life. That those wounds, those open wounds are going to be closed and that you're going to be able to have fathers and mothers and, and, and people in your life that, that are, have authority without pain. You're not going to carry pain anymore. You're not going to be like that dog who ducks all the time. Lord, I just release that over these people in Jesus' name. I release that over these people in Jesus' name. And, and I'll tell you, there's some of you, there's several of you in here that you've been waiting for a promotion, but God doesn't want to promote an illegitimate son. He only promotes heirs. And he's just been waiting for you to make this adjustment so that he can promote you. And he, some of you, he wants to move you from son to father, but you really actually never got everything you're supposed to get as a son or a daughter. And so, Lord, I just release promotion right now in this room. Promotion. That there would be news from tonight of people, because they've repented, they've changed the way they think about authority and fatherhood and honor all of those subjects, Father, that they would begin to prosper. They would begin to prosper right now. They begin to prosper in Jesus' name. I see the Lord, so, I see the Lord like walking among us and He's taking your forehead and He's just kissing you on the forehead. He's kissing you on the forehead because He's blessing your way of thinking. He's blessing a new way of thinking. Mm, all over this place. I see the Lord just walking among people. He's just blessing them. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Love covers a multitude of sins. Lord, I pray for love to rise in people who have been hurt. Love, that you would give them love for people who have hurt them. Or just release that in here right now in Jesus' name. Jesus talked about if you have something against your brother and you've come to bring an offering to me, leave a gift, go take care of your struggle with your brother. Lord, I pray that there would be a spirit of reconciliation in this room. I, I have a sense that this message is going to be repeated over and over, like even through archives, just this, even this prayer. I have a sense that Malachi 4... In the last days, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet. And he will, he, will, he will turn the hearts of fathers to sons and the hearts of sons to fathers. I believe that the prophetic 
At the root of the prophetic movement is the reconciliation of families. I really do. I believe, that, I believe that one of the ways that you find real prophets is that they are in the reconciliation business. They're not in a judgment business. They're in the reconciliation business. They're doing what they can to reconcile families, especially authority and honor. Lord, we release that over every single person in this room, and especially for those who are being prayed for. And you gave me power to forgive. Lord, I, I forgive all of those people who have abused your body. We forgive them. Father, I think most of them just didn't even know what they were doing. Lord, I just release forgiveness for the shepherds. I pray that you would give them a heart for the flock. Thank you, Lord.